Welcome to the Dear NICU Mama podcast. Our mission is to connect the past and the present NICU mom by bringing them out of isolation and into a sisterhood of women who can stand alongside each other as we heal and grow both in and out of the NICU. Our hope is that through interviews with trauma-informed medical and maternal mental health experts and vulnerable stories from NICU mamas themselves, that you would feel connected to the Dear NICU Mama Sisterhood around the world. So, whether your NICU journey was 50 years ago, or whether you find yourself in the NICU today, we hope that this podcast reminds you that you are not alone. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the Dear NICU Mama podcast. It's your host, Martha and Ashley. Wow. A lot I of felt like we were doing that really fast. Oh, I'm sorry. I can slow it down. I got to say, this is day four of trying Ritalin. And I had a Diet Coke just now. And so I'm feeling a little speedy. Ooh. Mostly because it is speedy. fast. Yeah, it is prescription <laughs> methamphetamine. Um, but <laughs> here we are back in the podcast. It's been a wild day so far, hasn't it, Ash? It's been something. We were going to do one podcast and now we're pivoting because our dear friend is stuck in the middle of a tornado warning. <laughs> she is safe. But, but as Nikki moms, <laughs> as Nikki moms, we know how to adapt, right? We've adapted from the conception of our children. So yep. here we are today adapting, and I'm very excited about the pivot of this week's episode. Yeah, it's it's gonna be it's gonna be great. It's also a long time coming because today's it guest is. is someone that we've known for a long time now, and who we we enjoy thoroughly. A ten out yes. of ten. We um, adore her. So well, before we go down, are you? How are you doing, Ashley? Are you okay? I'm thriving. How are you doing? I'm, I don't know, five, 5.5. <laughs> Thriving is not the yeah. right word, but it just felt appropriate in that moment. Um, if yes. you look at the grease of my skin on this video, you can tell what time of the month it is. No, it's so. just your ilias skin tint. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. It's a bad day to wear like dewy makeup when your face is already oily. Mm-hmm. You know what I've been using a lot lately and you might want to try it out is hydrocortisone cream on my face. <laughs> It gives you a really nice sheen, nice streaky base. Um, okay, so I'm glad we have this visitor today because this is probably the only person who would tolerate this this uh, nonsense. But um, as you know, sometimes we have the gift of interviewing experts in the field of neonatology and obstetrics and maternal mental health. And then we also have the privilege of interviewing NICU moms, just like you, our listeners, to hear about their stories and their journeys um, and to share their perspective with the world. And today we have not only a NICU mom, we have a Tubi mom. We have a professional lady who's wearing a blazer, <laughs> which I have not worn since high school speech, and also um, a member of like a beloved member of the Dear NICU Mama team, and that's Paige Blankenship. Welcome, Dr. Paige. Should we call Hi, you Dr. Paige? Yes. Please do not. Just call me Paige. <laughs> Please don't do it. I told you if I had a PhD I told or a doctorate, I said I would tell have my husband call me Dr. Mink like at our house. <laughs> Good for you. Um, welcome, Paige. We're so glad that you're here and thank you for your flexibility today. You're a gem. I'm so excited. Ash, do you remember how we met Paige the first time? We just got a an application on our oh. website, a volunteer application. And mm-hmm. I remember we fell in love with you instantly. And mm-hmm. Martha and I do these, you know, we have interview or um, applications come in and then we do the interviews together. And we were texting the whole time of like, she's amazing. We love her. We want her to be mm-hmm. on the team. Like the moment oh, that you so started sweet. sharing your story, we were texting <laughs> each other like, she's in. She's got to be a part of it. And it has truly been a treat. 
I haven't had as much one-on-one time with you as Martha has, but I get to hear about it. And Mm -hmm. every time Martha talks about you, she just raves about not only your sweetness and your compassion for this community, but also just your professionalism. And you really do give your heart to everything that you do. So it's a joy to know you and to get to call you our sister, but also a fellow team member too. So thank you so much for being here today. Yeah, you guys are so sweet. It's such a privilege to work with this amazing community too. Yeah. Well, and I do have to say, I get the privilege of putting the pictures of our team on the website. And when I saw Sully, you better believe it. I like flipped out. He is so cute. He knows it too. That's the problem though. He knows he's a super cute toddler. I had a really hard time recycling your holiday card, but I was like, it'd be weird to keep this other family's picture in my house. 12 months of the year <laughs> <It'd be strange. laughs> okay i would so freaking cute i know this is jumping ahead but how did you come up with sully's name i love his name mm-hmm. actually so boy names were really hard for my husband and i we just like there were a few girl names that we could agree on but boy names we just couldn't get there so we went through the internet and found anything acceptable. And then we made a bracket like you would for March right. Madness. Yes. So, yep, we pulled them out of a hat and seeded them and took like a whole weekend of this name or that name. And they moved on the <gasps> That's bracket. So fun. I, don't, I don't know bracket terms. That's his thing. But and then we came up. It's technically Sullivan, but that's his big boy name. So, so then, oh, he is. That's so yeah. cute. I love it so much. And also, I can't well, wait. Everybody guys. should stop the podcast and go look at the picture on the episode. <laughs> go look at Instagram and scroll through because it's so cute. He's so cute. His big old smile. Oh, oh his yeah. smile is everything. It's so contagious. Yeah. I was smiling he looks looking so at his much smile. like you, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. the best. Yeah. Sorry, I just had a moment of sadness because my child looks like my my husband, like a carbon copy of that little gremlin. <laughs> anyway, um, we're so glad that you're here today. I should say too, one of the coolest things that you've done, and this is maybe something that you can look forward to, is that Paige has been integral with us developing probably the most comprehensive library of NICU family resources on the internet. And um, we're putting it together. Hopefully it will happen within the year 2023 that it will be published. But she's single-handedly done so much research for that. And it has been incredible. Um, And actually, maybe we could start too, because you um, are a mental health professional yourself. Could you share a little bit about your background and practice? Because if I say it, it'll sound stupid and I'll say it wrong. (laughs) Absolutely. So I am a licensed psychologist and I work with kids and adults, but I, my specialty is trauma treatment with kids. So mm-hmm. I had an internship and a fellowship and a residency and all of these different training opportunities that really focused on how do I help kids with trauma. And that's all sorts of different types of trauma. I started off mainly working with foster kiddos and now I work with all sorts of kids and then also guide parents. How do we talk to kids about the experiences that they had? Mm -hmm. And I'm starting to venture into doing a lot more research and training of how do we help parents who have had these maternal events, like most of us have, Mm -hmm. how do we navigate that with sharing our own story with our kids, knowing Mm -hmm. that that is also their story? Well, we better do a podcast about that. That is so cool. I just got full body goosebumps. Wow. That is so cool. You're so smart. I just don't know, too, like the fact that you have like the brain space and capacity and drive to do these things, too, on top of being full-time mom and full-time job is pretty incredible. You're incredible. Got to find the balance. Yeah. Yeah, Yep. Well, I love it. Well, 
I think we should hop into your story because like Martha said, this has been a long time coming from the moment that we met with you. We knew that we wanted to share your story um, and give our community a chance to hear about your story with Sully. So can we start with when you found out you were pregnant and how was it to find out you were pregnant? Yeah, I mean, it was terrifying. So it was a couple of months after the height of COVID. So what, June of 2020 is when I learned that I was pregnant and we were like kind of trying, but kind of not trying and it was Mm -hmm. COVID and life was different. So, you know, Mm -hmm. it was not the real world at that time, Uh, but it was definitely terrifying and exciting all at once. Uh, My husband was like a hundred percent excited. I was probably 50, 50 terrified and excited. Yep. (laughs) Yeah. I love it. And how was your pregnancy overall? I mean, how, and I mean, you're in the like height of COVID. So I'm sure there was like a lot of added layer of just anxiety and uncertainty of having a baby during a pandemic. Yeah, that was really crazy. I was working for a hospital system too. So there was just so much uncertainty, right? We didn't know what COVID was, what it meant, what it meant for pregnant women. So I think that part was scary. But also because of that in the hospital system, we were using so much PPE and we were so protected that I wasn't, mm. I wasn't scared of COVID myself with those health implications, but the uncertainty sure. was the tough part. Um, I also left the hospital job and went into a group practice around that same time. So, you know, just adding on more uncertainty to everything else. Mm-hmm. And then... What else? I, I think the toughest part of pregnancy during the height of the pandemic was the appointments, which I know mm-hmm. a lot of us experienced, but only not being able to take my husband into the appointments with me, being the only one there, only one to receive any kind of news or anticipate that was absolutely terrifying. Yeah. yeah. Not For to sure. mention we were all going through like uh, the shared trauma of pandemic. Do you always, do you always yeah. forget about that? I forget that it was like such a, it felt, um, so immense at the time it was huge especially as a mental health provider too that was like um it just ate into you I'm sure at a a different level too yeah there was I mean just so many levels of Mm -hmm. stress and those adverse experiences I also remember it was so hard to wear a mask being pregnant there's stairs at the practice I work at and I was just like out of breath and dying the whole (laughs) time I'm sure yeah yeah, but otherwise, I was mostly healthy for most of my pregnancy. Like, first trimester wasn't bad at all. I was like, oh, this is a breeze. I got this. And then moving into second trimester, I started swelling so much. And I was just so swollen, and I felt so horrible. And my providers kept telling me, like, oh, it's just part of pregnancy. And then my friends would be like, no, this is not This is not normal. This is not what I've experienced. So I think for me, that second trimester shift is when things got really uncomfortable and then also really scary. That's when I started Mm -hmm. really considering, like, is something going on here? And I think I think I just knew in the back of my mind that something was happening. And in reality, I was developing Mm preeclampsia, but it wasn't diagnosed until it was pretty severe. And when you before you were pregnant with Sully and and during pregnancy, um, Obviously, you are work in the medical field, so you are obviously familiar with NICU, but is that something that you had ever anticipated or crossed your mind with your pregnancy, or is there anyone that you knew or loved that had gone through it before? 
So it actually did cross my mind. There's like looking back at my pregnancy, there's a few really odd red herrings. And one of them is that before I switched from a hospital career to a private practice career, my husband and I talked about moving somewhere else. And I remember saying to him like, hey, we're trying to get pregnant. Why don't we stay in the area? Because there's a really good NICU here. What if we need the NICU? Mm -hmm. And then looking back, I'm like, why would I think that? Why would I say that? Um, So it is something that I definitely considered. I don't think I ever acknowledged like, oh, it's a real possibility because you don't think that till you're in it. But I think my mindset was very much, I want the best resources available to me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You definitely strike me too. Well, and knowing you as well, like as a, a a practical person, you know, the the way that you, you think through possibilities and you work through what is it, eh, what might be best for you and your family, you know, there was a lot of things for you to juggle. So, um, yeah, I, I, I feel like I did the exact same thing. And it's so, it's weird. Like you think back, you're like, did I, did, is there something in me that knew or am I just, um, you know, I've watched too much Grey's Anatomy or what, you know, like there's, it's probably the latter, right? Yeah, it's like, yeah. I know magical thinking is not healthy, but yeah, yeah. yes, right. thinking through those options. Yeah. So after your friends had said like, okay, this doesn't quite seem right. And after you kind of had that inner intuition, when did you say like, okay, I think I need to go in and really get this looked out. Like what was kind of the determining reason for getting checked out? So it got caught at a regular appointment. I think uh, it's a little twofold. So one, I was avoidant. I was like, nope, I feel horrible, but I don't want to acknowledge this. And two, we had planned a vacation, like a little baby moon type situation. And so I'm like, I feel horrible, but vacation sounds good. That's all I need. Let me do that. Um, but while, and I had a regular appointment scheduled for right after our vacation, like right after we returned. And so we were in like the mountains in Georgia in a really small town with no big medical centers. And I felt so horrible on that trip. I remember my husband Mm -hmm. was like, should we drive to Atlanta? Like, should we drive somewhere with a larger medical system so you can get checked out? Um, and I was waking up when I look back at pictures of myself, I look like I was 30 years older than I am. My face was so swollen. I had bags under my eyes. My skin was droopy. Like at the time, I remember telling myself, like, I'm just pregnant and I just feel Mm -hmm. horrible. And in Mm -hmm. hindsight, when I look at pictures, I'm like, oh my God, I was so sick. So it was after that, when we got back from the vacation that I went to my appointment and they were like, oh, looks like you have preeclampsia. Let's just head over to the hospital. We'll get some labs. You'll probably be home by nighttime. Mm. Don't worry about it. Just drive on over there. Ugh. And how many weeks were you at this time? 30 weeks. Mm. Oh my goodness. It's wild what we're able to do with preeclampsia. I, mm. I photographed a wedding because I was also kind of in denial. And I look back mm-hmm. and I'm like, why did I think I was fine? You know, like you right. see the pictures right. and you see how swollen and you're like, wow, I'm kind of amazing, first of all, for like, yeah. you know, yes. doing life with severe <laughs> preeclampsia. But also like, I wish I could have told myself back then, like, please don't do that. <laughs> Just go to the doctor. I know. <laughs> I know. Well, it's so hard when it's like, on one hand, I know something's wrong and I know I need medical treatment. But on the other hand, I also know that means that I am now going to have a preterm delivery. Yeah. 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 So it's right. I mean, that that space of avoidance just feels more comfortable. It's not healthy, but it feels right. more comfortable. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. 
that's so, so true it's a kind of like you go in and then it's a threshold like you cross it and then that's it it becomes so real um yeah. so what so you were on the trip and you decided to come home then no i just wrote out the trip <laughs> wow. then, yeah. yeah 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 so again hindsight um, but it was only a couple of days on the trip. Of course, so I'm yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Well, whatever's going on, can't wait till I see my doctor. No big <laughs> yep, deal. It was yep, also yep. right after Christmas. So I'm like, you know, it's nobody's working anyway. All the things that we tell ourselves. Yep. But right. I got back from the trip, then went to my appointment. Okay. Okay. And so after they said like, okay, let's go do some labs, were you told like, okay, you're going to be on bed rest or what was kind of their protocol after they found out it was preeclampsia? So my providers, I was at my provider's office and they made it really casual. They're just like, Hey, there's protein in your urine. Maybe it's preeclampsia. I really want you to drive over to the hospital. It's called the baby place where I lived. Um, and it's just like an LMD department. So just drive over to the baby place. They're going to run some labs. You'll probably be home by dinner. If not, they'll probably just hold you 24 hours. No big deal. So, I mean, it was a really good sales pitch in hindsight because I was yeah. terrified, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But then I got there and all the labs, right? The ultrasounds, the, mm-hmm. you know, more urine collection, all of the things. And then I think the way that they presented it, and they put me on mag like right away too. Mm-hmm. So yeah. for anyone who's been on mag, you know, you're really fuzzy. Like what happened yeah. after that? I'm not exactly mm-hmm. sure. Um, But I'm pretty sure they were just like, hey, we're going to keep monitoring you. You're going to be admitted. There's a chance you might deliver tonight. There's a chance you might not. We never know with preeclampsia. Let's just wait and see. Yeah. Yeah. That was fun. Yeah. That was real fun. Yeah. And did your husband come with or you were you staying there? Because I always feel like that's hard too. You're like, oh, just stay at home. You know, just get, you should get a full night's rest, right? That type of thing, that decision. Yeah. So he wasn't allowed to show up until oh, I was admitted because of COVID. Yeah. Um, but he did come, he did show up and we don't have any other kids. So it was like, Nope, mm-hmm. someone's going to deal with the dogs. He's here with me. They also had one of those silly rules of like, once he comes to visit, he can't leave. Oh so it was like a high stakes decision too. Yeah, <laughs> like, okay, yeah. if you come, you're here, you're staying mm-hmm. with me. Yeah. However long you live here now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think with preeclampsia, it's this idea of like, okay, I'm 30 weeks right now. I could have a baby tomorrow or I could be living here for a couple of months. Mm-hmm. Nobody yeah. knows what this looks like. Yeah. Um, so he came to stay. They, he finally, this is funny. So he finally got permission to leave and go get some clothes at one point. And he was on his way back and I'm texting him. And I'm like, hey, where are you? I haven't seen you yet. And he was like, I think the hospital's on lockdown oh. because there's cops everywhere. I'm not allowed in. So I'm like, what the heck? So I call the nurse and she's like, so technically we're on lockdown, but I can't talk about why. So then my blood pressure is through the yeah. roof. Oh, and when you're yeah. hospitalized for preeclampsia, everyone's focused on your blood pressure. Right? Mm-hmm. And so I'm like, I'm like negotiating with the nurses. I'm like, please put in the chart that we're on lockdown. And that's why my blood pressure is so high right now. Please <laughs> right? Make sure the doctor yes, knows. Yes. Let's make sure they know. Um, and so there, like police officers even came and checked each room. So I don't know what was happening, but that was not a fun part of the hospitalization. Uh, husband finally got back in and ultimately I was in the hospital for like four or five days and I stabilized. They sent me home on bed rest and they were like, come back in three days for more labs. And that's when we delivered was when I came back for more labs three days later, but I was home for new year's. 
Oh my goodness. So there the most you go. uneventful I... New Year's of yeah. <laughs> like yeah. lay in this, lay in this recliner. Don't move. Don't do eat my low sodium diet. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> keep my feet elevated. Water yeah. down apple juice at midnight and then go to bed. <laughs> yep. yep. Oh, I didn't stay up till midnight. Are no, you kidding? no, 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 no. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, and what were like, what was going through your head at that time? I mean, obviously it's scary. Oh, it's uncertain. How did you get through every day? I mean, Ashley and I have walked through that too, that high risk pregnancy. Um, mm-hmm. And like you said, is it going to be today, you know, or is it going to be in two months? That's such a, a mental game. Mm-hmm. It's hard. I am the kind of person where I want information. Mm-hmm. So if something bad's going to happen, if something scary is going to happen, I want to know what's coming so I can prepare for it coping with anxiety, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So I wanted information, but I also knew that I did not want to consult with Google. And luckily, I know a lot of professionals in the hospital system. So I was reaching out to all of my friends going, hi, I need you to do some research on what a 30 or 31 week delivery looks like, and then send me the hopeful and helpful pieces of it. And so Mm -hmm. my support system was really great in that area. And then I also knew a psychologist who works in the NICU at the mm. hospital that I was going to be delivering at. So I reached out to her and was like, hi, I need you to talk me through this. I think we're going to be in the NICU. Please tell me what to expect. Again, I was on mag the whole time. So how much of it I understood and retained, I don't know. But yeah. I think it was a helpful part of my process. And I was yeah. lucky to have those resources too. Yeah, absolutely. I do think that's a great idea though of um, maybe putting a filter between you and Dr. Google because there's mm-hmm. so much on there, but they can maybe do a little bit, understand, maybe they can bring some questions that you could ask a doctor, you know what I mean? Because you can yeah. really spiral on your own when you're Googling. Well, yeah. And did you, I think you said, correct me if I'm wrong, but you said helpful and hopeful. Is that what you said? Mm-hmm. Information. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really important piece of what you asked for because mm-hmm. we all yeah. have a tendency to be like, give me it straight. I want the hard, raw facts. Yeah. I want to know the risks, which is good information. We know, like, we yeah. can't always be blind to it. And yet, I think in that vulnerable state, asking for that helpful and hopeful information is actually. Mm-hmm a lot more helpful, right? Mm-hmm. Like, because right. you know that eventually the doctor is going to sit down with you and tell you all yep. the other stuff. But mm-hmm. in that moment, you needed helpful and hopeful. And I think mm-hmm. that's a really, yeah. really good way to look at that. Yeah. Yeah. Looking back, it was a really great move. I can't believe I had the capacity yeah. to think um, through that. And it's because you're so brilliant. Snaps it's because you're amazing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So you said you went back and that's when Sully arrived into the world. So could you walk us yep. through a little bit of what your delivery was like and, oh you know, yeah. <laughs> as best you can. I know yeah, that let's big do it. stuff let's to our do heads, it. but <laughs> yeah. Um, so I actually woke up that morning and I was like, I'm feeling really good. Like I'm feeling <laughs> great today. This is the best I felt in a while. Like I'm just going to go do labs. They're going to tell me they look good. Again, uh, avoidance and denial. Um, and my husband's like, yeah, sure, babe. I'm like, yeah, you look good. Do it. Uh, so go in and um, something else that's hard, I think that's important for the story, is the OB practice that I was a part of, they had two obstetricians and then a few midwives. And there was one OB that I worked with the whole time I was hospitalized. And I really liked his style. We really clicked he was really supportive and he's like, listen, I'm going to do everything I can to keep this baby cooking as long as, as long as you're surviving it. That's my goal. So when I came back the next week, he was 
out of town and it was the other OB. So someone that I had not worked with all week, somebody that I didn't have a relationship with. And after they did the ultrasound, I mean, I don't know what it's called, but there's like a more serious ultrasound that's done at that point. After they did it, he came in and he was just like, hey, we're delivering this baby. Mm. And I was like, why? And he's like, we don't want him to be sick. We want to deliver him before he's sick. And then he left the room. Mm. And I was left like, what the heck is happening right now? I don't, I did not have a good understanding of what was happening. In that, like right after he left, the other OB that I had worked with previously called me just to check in and see how I was doing. And I was like, hey, this other doctor told me I'm delivering. And he was like, why? Is it just because of your blood pressure? I was like, I don't know. And I don't remember the rest of the phone call, but I got the impression from him that he didn't necessarily agree with the decision. Mm. He wasn't there to see everything that, you know, that the delivering doctor saw. But I think it, like in that moment, I appreciated that he was thinking about me and my goals, but also it was horrible to hear this other provider give me the indication, whether that was his intention or not, that he might not be doing it the same way. So that was hard. Um, And then I went into the delivery, like really not knowing why I was delivering in that moment. Mm -hmm. Pan out. The reason why is because Sully wasn't getting the blood flow that he needed. So he was IUGR and he was not getting what he needed. And it was really important that we deliver, not just for me, but also for him. And having that information would have been helpful, but it's not anything that was provided to me. Um, Can I ask a question right there? Yeah. Because I think this is something that we hear a lot of us kind of being thrown into medical situations and just being like, the doctor Mm -hmm. knows best, but we're so confused. So, you know, if you, if the, if, you know, you could take your experience of what you've been through and put yourself in it almost like again, like, how, like what would be a question that you would ask or like, you know, how would you advocate for yourself? Because sometimes it's helpful to hear how someone else would maybe advocate yeah. in those situations, you know, like what would you say or how would you, you know, talk with your doctor, do you think? That is such a great question. Um, I think first I would try to slow him down too, because my doctor was mm-hmm. just in and out. So I think I would have let him know that it was important that I had information by saying something like, Hey, I really need more information before we can go any further. Um, and then maybe just asking like, can you please explain to me everything that's going on right now? Why am I delivering? And if I didn't, and these are skills I learned from being a NICU mom, of course, Mm -hmm. skills I did not have at the time, but just continuously asking why, if you don't understand is okay and can be really helpful. So I wish I would have had 50 whys for him. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that uh, that's like, that's a wonderful idea because mm-hmm. even when you're, you know, and, and you're a provider, right? You know other doctors in other fields and things like that too. Mm-hmm. You work in medical settings, but still you were thrown off because it's in your body. You're in the throes of flight or, fight or flight. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a good thing for um, providers to hear on the other side too. You know, we I, we have wonderful NICU providers from all different types of domains who, who listen to the podcast, but to hear, mm-hmm. um, I know there's not a lot of time to waste, but even just stopping to give two sentences can make the difference or pause, get down on their level, make eye contact, give the direct information, maybe make sure there's a second party there to hear if possible, right? It's just a couple of little extra checks can really make the difference too, because there's not a lot that you can do when you're literally lying on your back and someone like walks in and out of the room, right? It's so hard. Yeah. And God, it can make such a difference. Like, 
For me, my birth was 100% traumatic. Like I came out of that delivery with PTSD, undeniably. If I would have had the information of why it was so important to deliver in that moment, I can't tell you exactly what that would have looked like, but I think I would have been able to process it so much better. Better. Yeah. 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 It it is so hard. And when you went, so when you were brought in to deliver, um, first, was it a, was it a C-section? Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and so, were you awake or asleep? I was awake. They mm-hmm. allowed my husband to show up right before they took me to the OR. Um, we had to wait on my COVID test, which at that point just felt so freaking trivial that they're like, yeah. hey, yeah. we have to deliver this baby super early. But also we got to wait 30 minutes for this COVID test. Yeah. And or in um, early days, even like the COVID tests were so much slower back then too. So frustrating. Yep. Yep. Um, so my husband got there right before they took me to the OR and then he had to go get gowned up. So they started the procedure before he came into the OR. I was awake. I was, I mean, I was crying the whole time. I was nauseous. I was puking. It was, I mean, it just felt like a worst case scenario, alien invasion where I was like abducted (laughs) and these people were doing things to my body against Mm -hmm. my will. Um, the obstetrician, pulled Sully out and said something to me, which I could not process in the moment. And then like pushed this tiny little baby against my face. And then Sully went away. And I was told later, he was like, Oh, do you want to give him a kiss? Was what his, yeah. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Um, And then Sully was taken to the NICU team and my husband went with him and he was intubated right away. So I didn't get to like, I saw his incubator like roll by as yeah. they were wheeling him off to the NICU. Yeah. And like you said, it's like, um, it's just these moments of time. And like, there's absolutely no way to associate emotion even when it's happening because mm-hmm. it's hap- it happens so fast. Um, and they can mm-hmm. complete emergency C-sections so quickly. I guess I didn't even, I had no idea. You know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. So I had, in, you know, you can, baby can be in and out for like five minutes. You know what I mean? That's, that's crazy. Um, it was so fast. So your husband went with, and you were alone, which is devastatingly hard. Um, did you, how did you recover from the surgery and how did you come down? Because there's always concern after delivery too, for, um, people with preeclampsia, um, of continued high blood pressure. How were you healing and recovering? Mm-hmm. Um, let's think. So the first two days, three days, I was recovering really well. Then I had a re-emergence of symptoms. Mm. So I was off mag. I got to go meet Sully. Life was looking a little bit better. And then I had the re-emergence of symptoms and had to go through the whole process again of labs and back on mag and not allowed to leave my room and see my Mm. baby. Uh, And then I think that lasted about two days. And then for me, I was on blood pressure meds for maybe six weeks, which is not that bad in the grand scheme of how, how the healing and recovery process can look. Yeah. And what was that moment when you were able to meet Sully? How long after you delivered were you able to go see him and how were you feeling at the time? Um, it was about 24 hours after okay. delivery, I think, or maybe just a little bit longer. It, gosh, it's, it's so confusing still looking back on that moment, even after processing this with my therapist and telling the story over and over yeah. because it was both 
amazing to meet him and the most terrifying thing I've ever done. Right. At that point, I had met him over FaceTime and John, which how ridiculous is that to take a step back and say, oh, I met my baby over FaceTime. Yeah. So, yeah. Like, it's just so stupid. Um, and like being on the meds that I was on, every picture I saw of him, I'm like, that's not my baby. That's an alien. Yeah. Like, this is a little alien baby with all of these machines. And yeah, I mean, you know, preemies at 31 weeks don't don't look like what you expect babies to look mm -hmm. like. Mm -hmm. So like I think there commercial. was, yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. So it was like, you know, a, a balance between excitement and maternal instinct and also this complete disconnect from the mm -hmm. experience that I just had and this baby that I just gave birth to. Yeah. Yeah. I think so many individuals identify with that or, and can echo that feeling. And, and there's so much grief. I feel like, in the fact that you were on these meds to save your life, your body is fighting so hard to keep you well. And also, you know, your cortisol levels are completely spiked, right? So then we know that mm -hmm. you're not going to retain memories like you normally do. And so it feels fuzzy and how yep. that's not what any of us wanted. We wanted to remember and savor every single moment, but our bodies mm -hmm. were doing something else, which was keeping us alive, which is, you know, arguably more important, but also really feels unfair. Um, yeah. is that something that you, I mean, that you've processed with? I mean, I know you talk about seeing, going to therapists too. It's something you walk mm -hmm. through. Absolutely. And I think for me, something that it, for me, the most shameful part that I do want to share, because I think it's important to share shame because we do not need to feel shame. And I want other moms to know that these types of experiences are normal. Mm -hmm. For me, it comes down to right after delivery, before I got to meet him, I had thoughts that I attribute now to the mag and the trauma of, what if I just run away? What if I just go make a new life for myself in Mexico and I never see my husband again? Mm -hmm. And I never meet this baby that, you know, looking back now, I'm like, oh my God, I feel so much shame thinking about that thought. But I also recognize that was my body just trying to survive. That was my yeah. brain trying to survive. Like, how do I deal with this? Maybe I'll just escape it because that yeah. seems like an option at this moment. Yeah. Well, that totally makes sense. Thank you so much for sharing that because yeah. they takes, uh, it takes some of the power away and hearing some, I know that there's other people that have had the same feeling. I, I mean, I thought about that last week and running away, you know what I mean? And it makes you <laughs> yeah. feel less alone. It just like completely dissolves the yeah. shame when you hear someone else say it. So thank you for, yeah. for sharing and that. And speaking shame out loud is the best thing that you can do. I'm saying this as a psychologist now, not yeah. as the NICU mom or maybe mm -hmm. both. But when we feel shame about something, the more that we can share it with others, the more mm -hmm. power we take back. So that's yeah. a really important part of the process too. Yeah. And also, I, I mean... Um, I think it's so powerful that you do that because looking back on what you did was pretty superhuman. You were like pushing the bounds of what the human body is capable mm -hmm. of. And it was COVID too. So there were, I'm sure like these extra protocols uh, around visiting men in, in the hospital too. And then you had limitations because of your high blood pressure and, um, so hard. Um, what were those early days like with, with you and your husband figuring out what the routine would be like and going through that, what they call the honeymoon phase, right, of, of um, Sully normalizing right. to life on Earth? Yeah, I mean, I think the COVID protocols were one of the hardest pieces. Like once you wrap your mind around, okay, I have a baby in the NICU. We don't know how long we're going to be here. This is what life looks like. I For me, it was... 
I quickly adjusted to just, okay, we are in a new culture and I need to learn it. Like I need to learn the ins and the outs. But the COVID protocols were hard because my husband and I were not allowed to visit at the same time. Um, and we had a pretty long NICU stay. We weren't allowed to visit at the same time until three and a half months in, I want to say. Mm-hmm. So there was just, I mean, just this huge chunk of time in the beginning of my child's life where we could not be together as a family. Yeah. And that part was really, really hard. Yeah. Yeah. So painful too, because you're recovering. Honestly, imagine holding a baby with like 80,000 wires and tubes and things like that. And like, you need to push up your glasses. Okay. What are you going to do? You know what I mean? Like scream for the nurse right. to come and push it up. Been there yeah, on that, but you exactly know, you yeah. <laughs> it's so, it's so hard. It's frustrating. Um, yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned that Sully had a longer NICU stay. So can you walk us through a little bit of some of his triumphs and setbacks and, um, you know, beyond his prematurity, were there reasons that extended his NICU stay? Yes. So overall, we were in the NICU for almost five months. Um, When he was born, he was tiny because he was IUGR, but he was doing really well. So the first two Mm -hmm. weeks was really smooth. And I kept hearing things like, he's checking all the boxes. Mm -hmm. Maybe you'll go home sooner than your due date. So all that felt really great. Mm -hmm. Um, And then at, I think, 15 days of life, so right around two weeks, he got really sick. And he was diagnosed with something called necrotizing intercolitis. They call it NEC, N-E-C. And it's one of the scariest things that can happen in the NICU. And it's something that I had never heard of. It was nowhere on my radar. Um, and it it definitely felt like it kind of came out of nowhere. In fact, our NICU had like a north side and a south side. And the south side was for the newer babies and the sicker babies. And the north side was like your step to go home as you're moved over to that side. And I walked in one morning and they were like, oh, your baby's moved over to the north side. That's really great news. That means they're closer to going home. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. I didn't even know about this. That's wonderful. And then I walked into his room and the nurse practitioner was there. And she was just Mm. like, I was about to call you. Let's talk. So it was the day he was moved over there that Mm. he was diagnosed. So with neck, it is a terrifying disease. Um, it's fatal for a lot of babies, and Sully was a lucky one who got through it, but with several surgeries and a lot of ups and downs. Um, essentially, it is, it's like inflammation and infection of the intestines. So if a baby has neck, the protocol is stop feeding them, you go NPO, they live on TPN, and we do antibiotics, and then we wait and see. So let's see what happens. Maybe they'll need surgery, but maybe not. Maybe antibiotics is enough. And we had so much wait and see in our NICU stay. Mm -hmm. Um, We just watched for, I think it was two weeks before they ended up doing his first surgery. And we just watched him get sicker and sicker and sicker. But doctors, you know, just kept saying, we have to wait and see. This is what we have to do. And I really trusted our medical team and all of the NICU staff. Like, I really appreciated all the care that he got. So we waited. Um, and then he got pretty sick one day and I caught it before the nurse did. So mm-hmm. that is just another thing. Um, then he had his first surgery. That was, so that was actually technically the first time that my husband and I could be together only in pre-op. So our yeah. first family photo is like us wheeling our baby into pre-op and we could oh. only be together during the sur- or like in pre-op during the surgery, but we couldn't both go back to the NICU together afterwards. Mm-hmm. Can I just say, I'm like, 
I don't know if it's because I'm on my period. I am a crier in general, but like I'm exceptionally so when I'm on my period. But I, when you explained like you guys for the first time being with Sully in that pre-op, that to me is the very definition of our recent in sickness and in health collection. Like yeah. we just launched that collection. That to me is exactly what that is. Like you yeah. guys have just like walked through fire and the first time you guys are meeting your son together mm-hmm. is when he's sick, you know, like, yeah. so I just have to say you guys are amazing, but also how heartbreaking that, you know, yeah. that was your first family photo. And mm. I know it's so crazy. Like when I think back on these memories, it feels like someone else's life at this point. Yeah. <laughs> I'm yeah. just like, Oh yeah, that was me. Wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah. So, so crazy. Um, so he got through his first surgery and the surgeon's like, it went beautifully. That was the best surgery. You know, all of the great things, mm-hmm. but then he just wasn't healing. So we are in this next phase of wait and see. And actually he got, really sick afterwards like I remember our nurse practitioner that I had developed a good relationship with who had gotten to know me through this process and she knew I liked the information she was gone for a few days and the people there instead you know they would just give me the normal lines that practitioners give families and it's like oh this is all expected this is all expected but when the practitioner came back that knew me well that I had a relationship with she's like no this is not expected like this is scary but there are still more things we can do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like there's more that we can do. But I think that's also the first time that it clicked like, oh, he's on the verge of death right now. Like mm-hmm. actually hearing those words, there's still more we can do. Like, mm-hmm. okay, so that's hopeful. And also, wow, that really gives me perspective to mm-hmm. where we're at. Mm-hmm. So it was another month of he's sick, but we don't know why. Maybe he has neck again. Maybe he has something else going on. We don't know. We'll probably have to do surgery, but we don't want to do it too soon. So mm-hmm. we're just back in that wait and see period. And the sur- was the surgery to like remove part of the intestines or? Yep. Yeah. yeah. Like- so his first surgery was a bowel resection. So they just removed mm-hmm. a little part of his small intestine. Um, what's kind of crazy and absolutely amazing is that with neck, babies have the risk of their bowels perforating. So you have this infection, this inflammation, so your guts are weaker, essentially, and there's a chance that they could perforate. And that's when it gets really terrifying, because if a baby perforates, then they can get sepsis and go into organ failure, all of the things. Um, So they were constantly doing x-rays and checking for perforations, never saw anything. Mm -hmm. After his um, surgery, the surgeon was able to say he actually did perf, and it had already healed itself. So like he went through that process and nobody knew and the perf had started to heal. So that was a crazy perspective. Mm -hmm. Um, And a lot of his doctors were pretty, pretty shocked by that. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, I mean, that's, you, you talked about this a little bit, right? Like you identified when he was getting sick one time and you caught it before someone else and not catching this until they're actually inside looking, you know, um, it's just a reminder that specifically neonatal, neonatal medicine is, there's a lot that's like cutting edge, like brand new medicine, things coming out all the time. And there's like a gray element to it. There's like an artistry, there's kind of a, an element of who your provider is might change the course of care. And that, 
that's really hard when you are the constant, you are the person seeing your baby day in and day out. Um, and like you said, that NP who knew you really well was able to articulate that, take care of you and help you understand it, but mm-hmm. also knew him too. Um, yeah. Right. So you said he got sick after surgery and then what was kind of the turning point for him or when did you start to see like, okay, we're kind of, we're, we're switching gears. We're going in a different direction now. Well, he just kept getting sicker after surgery. <laughs> so it was, um, just a month of him remaining okay. sick. And then they were like, let's try to start feeding him again and just see what happens. And that was scary. Cause I knew all of the yeah. providers and some were very candid with me. They're like, it's probably not gonna be great, but also we have to try at some point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and they tried and it did not go well. So then mm-hmm. we knew he was set up for another surgery. So mm-hmm. the second surgery was another bowel reception where they took more of a small intestine, but this time they also placed a temporary ostomy. So for anyone who doesn't know what that is, instead of reconnecting his intestines, they brought both ends of his intestines up to his belly. So he had two stomas on his belly. And then they also went ahead and placed a G-tube for him proactively. So Mm -hmm. um, we didn't know if he had any feeding issues at that point, but he had lived his whole life on TPN and he was intubated a lot. So they said, let's just do this as a precaution. And then it was, I mean, that surgery was terrifying, right? So we had the same surgeon and... I told you after the first surgery, the surgeon came back and was like, that was great, super Mm -hmm. smooth, wonderful. And he came in after that second surgery and he looked so defeated. And that was just Mm -hmm. terrifying. Mm -hmm. Like he's the flight attendant, right? Like I need you to stay calm Mm -hmm. so I can stay calm. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And I mean, he was still calm and stoic, but he just looked defeated. And he started drawing on the whiteboard in our room. Um, And my, my husband was allowed to be there for the entire day, that surgery. So we had a whole day together, which in hindsight, I'm like, oh, because they didn't anticipate it was going to go well, I think, but that's neither here nor there. So the surgeon starts drawing a picture and I like that 30 seconds of him drawing before talking to us felt like eternity. Like, what is he about to tell us? And essentially he just walked us through. Talk, then draw. Talk, then draw. Right. Right. Like, oh my God, why are we just waiting for so long? Um. And essentially it was a com- it was a little more complicated than they expected. And also they had some contents of his intestines spill into his abdomen. Mm-hmm. So they were like, he is absolutely going to have a big inflammatory response to this. Um, mm-hmm. buckle up, basically. That's so terrifying. So I mean, in that moment, how did you even process that? I mean, did you? I don't know, honestly. I think we had already been on such a roller coaster of wait yeah. and see and getting worse, wait and see and getting worse, wait and see and getting worse. And I think I was bracing for it was part of it. Um, we also, one of our neonatologists that also got to know us really well before the surgery was like, was like, that's like, I doubt that's going to happen again. That doesn't happen twice. Yeah. And then afterwards he, and he's something I really appreciate afterwards. He was able to come back and say, I learned a lesson from that and I'm never going to say that to a family again because this surprised mm-hmm. me too. Um, and I think at that point we had been in the NICU long enough that we felt that we had a NICU support system. So we had nurses sure. and we had practitioners and we had neonatologists that helped us along the way. So I think that yeah. was a big part of processing it for me. Um, the memory that stands out to me the most is seeing Sally right after surgery. And he was so like, he was bloated and swollen and he had mm-hmm. these two stomas and he had this G tube, which right when it's placed, at least 
under these circumstances, it's not the little Mickey button. It's like this giant device. Mm -hmm. And I just remember looking at him and feeling like his body had been mutilated. And so Mm -hmm. for me, it was the thoughts of my baby's body's mutilated and also it's saving his life. So like, how do I balance these two dialectical thoughts at the same time? Wow. Yeah. And it's, we, all the time, but for, for sure in, in this experience, in Sully's experience and with Neck, because there is, um, there's just so much uncertainty surrounding the condition. Um, and really, it's one of the few things in, like that there's not like a, a straight ahead protocol in the air for it's like kind of a throw your hands up and baby will tell us thing. But yeah. um, the thing that's different about this kind of trauma, as opposed to a car accident or... Um, you know, an act of violence or, or something like that is that it is ongoing and constant. And so mm-hmm. at a certain point too, you kind of have to just gear up and your body just becomes like, um, for lack of a better word, you're like a soldier, right? Like you have this wall yep. up where you're protecting yourself and um, learning how to do that so that you can survive so that you can be there for him. Cause you're only, you can only process these, this information in little bits and it like kept coming. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I feel, I feel like you've done an incredible job of, of yeah. um, processing this uh, as you've gone along too. And and also kudos to you, by the way, Paige did not know she was going to be sharing this story today. So I just want to go on record <laughs> saying that this is, you're doing a beautiful job sharing something that is really hard to do in one sitting. So. Well, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I hope it can help others. Yeah. It sure. absolutely will. So after he had that second surgery, you know, when did Sully start to turn a corner and when did you start to see improvement? We had another bumpy, like two weeks that were terrifying because the spillage into his abdomen caused infection. He had some abscesses, but I mean, at this point he had the whole medical team a little terrified too. Like I could, there was definitely a shift after that second surgery from providers being very confident to providers being like, Right. We don't want to. We don't want to say anything. We don't want to assume anything because nobody trusts any preemie. I think, but they definitely didn't trust Sully at this point. Um, so with the abscesses he had, I think there was a lot of talk of this might be neck. I remember the surgeon came in. Oh, this was the worst conversation I had in there. The surgeon came in and was like, "There's a chance that Sully's body just has these huge inflammatory responses to surgery, which then leads to more neck, and then that will lead to another surgery." And that could lead to more neck. And I remember asking, like, how does that, how do we break that cycle? And he just stared at me. And I was like, mm. oh, okay. Yeah. Um, but Sully did not have neck again. That was mm. the surgeon's fear. That was, he was afraid in that moment. And he was sharing mm. with me things that maybe didn't need to be shared at that point in yeah. time. Um, yeah. And even that practitioner that I love so much came in later and was like, I wish I could put a lock on your door so people wouldn't come tell you things like that. <laughs> yeah, like, right. Seriously. All your for me. Yeah. I'll be your filter. Seriously. Write it down seriously. in a, in a, in well, a comment we, box and then she will yeah. see what is valid. Well, I pull for it. I ask so many questions. I'm like, <laughs> I want to learn everything about this. So I definitely pull for it. Um, so we had another scary couple of weeks and then he turned a corner and he started mm really healing and he looked like a different baby and he acted like a different baby and that was also a hard journey because we were in ostomy bag world and for him it was especially challenging because his ostomy bags would come off like every hour and they take like a whole hour to put on and it was Mm. painful he was screaming it was like Mm. it was a whole different kind of horrible 
yeah. but it was a short term, short term, horrible, sorry, short term, horrible and not a long term, mm-hmm. horrible. Um, but then he just, he kept getting better. So that was mm-hmm. wonderful. And then we finally had his final surgery, which was to reverse the ostomy and reconnect. And there's still a lot of like really scary anxiety related to, will this work? Will his intestines work? What's going to be the outcome? What will it look like? How much longer will we be here? But that last surgery went beautifully. Mm-hmm. And they had prepared us to be in the NICU for like a year, essentially, is what we were told at one point. And then after his reconnection, we had about a week of him doing well. And then we were told he'll probably go home next week. Oh my god. And gosh. that was just a complete shock. I was like, yeah. that was in May. And I'm like, I'm prepared to be here through Christmas though. Like, what is yeah. happening? Yeah. Um, yeah. so it was an amazing surprise. Wow. Wow. And knowing that you would be going home with um because he, he w- was he using the G tube at that point or were they prepping you for that? He was using the G tube and then we were just starting to try oral feeding. Yep, yep. So you had mm-hmm. just started that and then they're like, Go home, have fun, bye. Like how yep. did you even prepare <laughs> for the life that would be medical parents, medically complex parents, to be parents, that whole the whole shebang. Yeah. I mean, I don't think we had time to prepare for it. It all just kind of yeah. happened. Um I think because my husband and I, so that was May when we went home, it was mid-March when we started being allowed to be there at the same time. And that was a game changer too. So I forgot Mm -hmm. to bring that up. Like that life felt so much more stable when we were both there. There's actually a picture of on the day. So the first surgery was our first family picture, but the second surgery when Sully was a little older, there's a picture of him in my arms and John's right next to me and he's looking up at us. And I, whenever I see it, my thoughts are that Sully's thinking like, oh, you two humans know each other? Like, oh. how how do you know each other, right? Like, you're both here at the same time. That's so funny. Um, He's like, small world. Um, crazy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, oh, small cool. world. <laughs> um, but so I think having my husband there also helped because we were able to start processing together and practicing using yes. this equipment yes. together. Mm-hmm. So that was huge. Yeah. And what did it feel like when you walked him through the doors of your house? Like when you finally did that, because it's a long stay, you mm-hmm. kind of had, didn't have a lot of time to mentally prepare for it. You had doggos at home at the time, I'm assuming. Yes. yes. What, yes. How, what did it feel like? How did you start healing when you got home? Um, I mean, it was terrifying. Mm-hmm. I will say there was, there was a part of leaving the NICU that was also like a mourning process which is so odd to think back on now. And I think this whole journey is characterized by these, like these thoughts and feelings that really don't go together. Um, We were so thrilled to be leaving the NICU, but that was our only support system at that time. We didn't have family that lived close. We, you know, with COVID, we weren't visiting anyone. Mm -hmm. Um, So I remember our last day there, we were both crying because we were like, what are we going to do? Like, we're parents to this medically complex baby, and we're no longer going to have the support. And one of the doctors came in and was like, oh, you must just be so happy. And we're like, yeah, that would be the normal feeling. That's what we're experiencing right now. Um, Getting home, I think there was definitely a learning curve with the medical appointments and with the Mm -hmm. G-tube and the equipment. But it also was just such a relief that I think that we settled in pretty nicely and were able to, to process in such a natural way at that point. Yeah. 
there's I, you articulate it so well and I think um it's interesting too because there is like uh there's the grief of saying goodbye to everybody you trust but also literally just two weeks ago was <laughs> such a different yeah, mind yeah. game so there's that I think a lot of people identify with that feeling of like so before he had like 40 people monitoring him and now it's just us you know yeah uh and that's yeah. overwhelming and a lot for to process too um Yes, yeah. very much. It was very hard to trust my instincts. And mm -hmm. luckily, I maintained relationships with a lot of providers and was able mm -hmm. to reach out way more than I think, you know, someone else might. <laughs> um, but it was really, I think that might be the most challenging part was getting a grasp on like my maternal instinct and how to take care of him without second guessing literally yeah. everything that's happening. Yeah, for sure. So we talked a little bit about, you know, kind of trusting our instincts and things like that. Um, and I think that's one thing that maybe medical mamas, it's like kind of this learning curve. Like not only are you like kind of becoming like what feels like a quote normal mom, right? Quote, because like you're at home, but then mm -hmm. you're also like a medical mom too. And so a quote nurse. Yeah. <laughs> and a nurse. Yeah. And a provider and like all of these things at one time. So you know, when did you start to like really feel like you could trust your abilities and, you know, what encouragement would you give to other NICU moms in the NICU today that are, you know, embarking on that to be journey or medically complex journey? Um, you know, how would you encourage them where they are? Yeah. When did I start trusting myself? I have no idea. Like, do I now? <laughs> I think I do. <laughs> I'm pretty right. sure I do most days. Um, I don't know if I can identify like when that shifted for me, but I do know that it kept getting easier over time. So, and I think this goes hand in hand with the encouragement I would give is there are so many situations that I faced where I, where I was able to tell myself, okay, I know this is not worst case scenario, but this feels really close to it right now. But then whatever it was, I was able to adjust and continue. And I remember having that experience a million times. So it's finally like, okay, he is out of the woods. He is alive and he's going to keep living. But now will he ever be able to eat orally? This feels worst case for what I'm handling right now. Mm -hmm. But then it kept getting easier. So I think mm -hmm. part of the encouragement is that as humans, we are resilient. Like our babies are resilient, but we are resilient too. Mm -hmm. And we adapt and we overcome. And these things that can feel so scary at one point in time, can become easier and once they do you're able to gain perspective and look back and say like this was nowhere near worst case scenario this was nowhere near where i thought that it was at the time mm -hmm. i felt that way but that doesn't make it true yeah and i wish i had that peace of mind as i was going through it um mm -hmm. and i think it might be hard for anyone to have that peace of mind as they're going through right. it but mm -hmm. if you ever are in the position to tell yourself that in the midst of the moment it's mm -hmm. true things get easier and we adapt and we are resilient. Yeah. That's the sound by Ash. I know. I was like, I already can see it as a podcast <laughs> quote on our Instagram. <laughs> that was great. Um, <sighs> that's so good. And, you know, not to like put you on the spot, but, you know, specifically about like G tubes and feeding, you know, what is maybe like a misconception you feel like people have about being G tube fed or being a G tube kiddo and how have you seen it? you know, completely the opposite in your life? Like how has it been a blessing for Sully and how has he thrived with having a G-tube? Like what kind of exceeded your expectations in a way that you didn't expect? That's a great question. I think that, oh man, I, I don't want I to put you on the spot. Hole. Let me think. No, no. Well, 
we live in a world where able-bodied persons have such privilege Mm -hmm. and there's such discussion and stigma against ability or disability or differing Mm -hmm. ability. And I think that a lot of times people who are too fed are lumped into that, you know, that category of disability. And I do not have enough time right now to talk about all of the issues with with lumping anybody into a category of disability or what this could possibly mean in our society. But I think with that, for tube fed individuals and people with so many other differing abilities comes this idea that they are different and that they cannot achieve the same things as others. Mm. And I think for Sully's life, for what I can speak to, that is so far from the truth. Like Mm. his, his tube feeding, his G tube gave him the ability to grow and to thrive. I'm not going to lie. I hated that thing more than anything. We are now mm-hmm. G-tube free. And I, I hated all of the <laughs> logistics that went with it. The mm-hmm. life is not easy. It is hard, <laughs> but we are resilient. Um, but at the same time, like that's what helped him grow and thrive yeah. and start catching up on those milestones that he yeah. missed because yeah. he lived in the hospital for so long. Yeah. So it's like with this view of maybe he is different, maybe he is other also, this is what is helping him be his best self. Yeah. So it's, I don't know if I've processed all of that fully enough to articulate it for you here. No, you um, did. But it's, it's no, another one of those mixed emotions and mixed cognitions. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Such a, a, a wise thing to say too, is that, um, and you're right that it's like a thing that we do from our point of privilege, you know, that whatever, whatever, whatever category we kind of mentally put our children into or other people's children into, um, that we shouldn't equate it with limitation. We should equate it with like, uh, uh, you know, the same opportunity, but perhaps need different, different elements to get there. Right. And like you said, this was something having a G2, um, saved his life in a lot of ways. Right. I mean, it was part of the mm-hmm. things that helped him get out of the NICU and be safe. Um, yep. so it's okay to have mixed emotions about it too. Yeah. Yeah. I was yeah. just going to say, I appreciate that. You also said yeah. you hated it, you know, yeah. that oh, it, yeah. you can also hate it and also greatly appreciate it <laughs> because yes. I think sometimes strong feelings on both <laughs> right. ends of the spectrum. Exactly. Yeah. No, it's that duality. And I appreciate that you mentioned that because to any moms listening whose mm-hmm. kiddos are G2-fed and you feel like bad saying that, right? Because mm-hmm. like you know that it's helping them, but knowing that it's okay to feel both. In fact, it's normal. And, you know, yeah. it's very natural to feel both. I think that's true of so many of the experiences that we have as NICU moms, no matter what our journey is, is it's important to remember that two things can be true at once and that they can be these dualities. I can love this feeding pump because it's keeping my child alive and allowing him to thrive. And I can freaking hate it because <laughs> it ruins my day. And yeah. both of these things are true. We actually named our feeding pump Humpty Pumpty. <laughs> and Humpty Pumpty was a serious frenemy. So. Oh my God, I love so that. Oh God. That's going to be an Instagram quote too. Name your <laughs> pump. Yes. It's kind of like how they named um, the... Um, they named a snowplow in Minnesota Blizzo after Lizzo. So we need to kind of, <laughs> is there some way we can work Lizzo into the word breast pump? We'll think about it. 
Um, but also I, I know we've talked about this, but we'll definitely have to have you back to talk again about more about nutrition and feeding, because I think that Mm -hmm. you and Sully have this really wonderful experience and it's been so cool to knowing you personally, to hear about the different ways you've advocated for him and the different things that have worked for him and his feeding journey. So I can't wait to learn more about that another time. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and we mentioned it earlier today, but Paige really did on a whim completely agree to do this. Uh, We had a different (laughs) thing in mind and Paige, you truly did a remarkable job and I'm going to put you on the spot again. Um, I tend to Mm -hmm. do that, but you know, this, this theme of the podcast season is about growth. We've talked a lot about growing Mm -hmm. our families, family building journeys and things like that. And we've heard throughout this episode a little bit about how Soli has grown in the ways, you know, nutritionally and big in size and size and all the ways that he's mm-hmm. achieved. I'd love to hear from you, you know, how have you grown? You know, what is like mm-hmm. one way after your experience that you've grown and, um, you know, that you can look back and be like, wow, I've come really far? That's such a good question. Um I think I've grown in a lot of ways. And I also want to take a step back. The psychologist in me wants to also explain yeah, that. Please. There's a concept called post-traumatic growth. And it's something that we all are capable of achieving with the right supports at the right timeline. So after we go through trauma, you are not expected to be functioning as the person that you were before, right? We have right. this decline in functioning that happens for a while. And then what happens next is dependent on so many things, um, your past and the support that you're seeking and whether or not you're in therapy and how you're processing. But for some people, we continue to decline and remain in that area of PTSD. For some people, we hit recovery, which is back to baseline. And for some people, you can continue to develop and get into this area of post-traumatic growth, which means that because of your trauma, you have found ways to grow as a person. And I don't think I'm there necessarily personally, but that's definitely my aspiration for myself and for all of us. Mm -hmm. And with that, um, a lot of that is a shift in perspective. And I think that's where I put my efforts is thinking about how much this experience has changed my perspective. So my perspective on life, my perspective on motherhood, my perspective on who I am and what I'm capable of. And I see that personally in the small moments. So when there are things that Sully cannot do yet and the things that tug at my heartstrings and I think, oh, because of everything we went through, that's why he's not able to do these things right now. Then I quickly work my hardest to reframe that and gain the perspective. But holy cow, I'm here to see what he's doing right now. I survived this and he survived this and we are on this journey together. And that's my perspective. And for me, that's been really helpful. Oh, that's so beautiful. I'm I literally have a beautiful movie tear running down my face right now. I don't cry too that often because of my medication. But I also um that is just stunning. And um yeah. for you it's it's incredible to hear your story knowing you because we work together and do like a lot of work together so we don't get to I don't get to hear the full journey but then seeing you and hearing you work hearing you talk about your work with your clients now too. Um, it, it's just like really powerful. I hope that you're so proud of yourself because um, you to me are like this kind of a shining example of that concept of post-traumatic growth. And like, I hope that's really powerful for, for women and people to hear that um, not only can you survive it, but you can, it doesn't have to be a stain, right? It can mm-hmm. be um, 
this thing that that you wear that um, keeps you going and it makes you better even. Not that it should have happened to begin with, but listen, you're not in Mexico. And that's, right. that's I did a not win. run away to Mexico. That is a pro <laughs> and a con at the same time. But you know what I mean? And what you were just saying, it can be both a stain and a badge of honor at the same time. Yeah. Right. Back true. to the dualities. Yeah. It's both. Yeah. It's that's both. True. Yeah. You must be such a good psychologist. You must be so yeah. good at your job. <laughs> Seriously. You guys are too sweet. Oh, no. I thank you for sharing today. Um, I know we Thanks put you so on the spot, um, but I really, like Martha said, it's been a testament to the healing that you've done, friend. You can well, tell throughout you. this episode that you have dug deep and you are doing it and it's evident and it's just an honor and a joy to be on the other side of it with you and hear about it and see how Sully is striving today because of the ways that you advocated and loved him and love him today. It's just remarkable. So uh, to all of our mamas listening, we want to thank you as always for tuning in and for hearing these stories of hope. And we hope that today you heard loud and clear that duality is okay that it's okay if you feel all of it at the very same time. Um, you can feel grief and joy at the same time. You can feel gratitude and resentment at the same time. It can be both. And so uh, no matter where you find yourself, if you're on a medically complex journey, if you're out of your NICU stay or in the middle of it, we just hope that you are reminded that healing is lifelong. And so we love this community. We love you, Paige. Thank you for being a part of this sisterhood and for really being a beacon of hope for all of us. And um, it was an honor to hear your story. And uh, we definitely will have you back. I feel like this episode stirred up some different episode ideas for the future of just your wisdom and your expertise and um, who you are. So thank you for being here. And mamas, we will be here back next week. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the Dear Nikki Mama podcast. If you loved this episode, we'd be so grateful for a review on any of the podcast platforms. And we'd love to continue connecting with you via our social media pages or our private Facebook group. And ultimately, Nikki Mama, welcome to the sisterhood.